You know, I mentioned to you last week that over the next five Sundays, four Sundays now, I'm going to be preaching from Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Last week we looked at verses 12, 13, and 14. Today we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. And then we're going to work our way through this entire passage. So let's stand together as I read God's word. I want to read that entire passage again. And then we'll concentrate on verses 15 through 17. You listen as I read God's word this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father... I pray that you would now give to me the gift of the Holy Spirit, that I might minister and proclaim your word with power. Father, may the truth of your incomparable word search the conscience, convince the mind, and win the heart of these dear ones who now hear it. And the glory of your kingdom be advanced. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. This paragraph to which we now come, verses 15 through 17, is uh, is one in which Paul basically develops the differences between our being in Adam and our being in Christ. But I think to more fully understand it, let me just review a little bit of some of the things we talked about last week. Paul is writing here about Christ and Adam. And in verse 12, he, he started to develop an important comparison. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, at that point, 
Paul obviously intended to go on with something like we find in verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. But he doesn't go on. When he got to the point of saying, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, he interrupts his thought. And as I said last week, that's indicated by that dash at the end of verse 12. I think he pauses here as if he senses that that most of his readers would be confused by his words because all sinned. You know, they would probably think just as we would think, that Paul meant only that all people sin, when actually he meant that all have been accounted sinners because of Adam's first transgression, that Adam's sin was imputed to the entire race. So he does basically the only sensible thing he could do. He broke off what he was saying to explain himself. And verses 13 and 14 are that explanation. We looked at them last week. In these verses, he shows that the punishment for sin, which is death, was in the world even before the law was given through Moses. Therefore, since people everywhere died during this period, though they were not technically transgressors of the law, which was not yet given, they must have been condemned, not for their own transgressions, though they were certainly guilty of them. They were condemned for the sin of Adam. Paul's point is that we were condemned by reason of our union with Adam. Just as we have been now saved by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. Dear ones, that is a, if you get nothing out of that, of this passage, that is extremely important. It's a great principle. We cannot miss it. We are condemned not by our sinful nature, not by the fact that we sin, as bad as those are. We are condemned by the fact that Adam disobeyed God and his sin was imputed to us. And you see, God saves people through this, this same principle of imputation. Christ was obedient to God. And you and I can, through the channel of faith, be saved. Not by our own merit, but by having our sins imputed to Christ and having his righteousness imputed to us. And then Paul gets to the end of verse 14. And he says something very, very interesting. He parallels Adam and Christ. He speaks here of Adam as a type of Christ. Now notice his words. Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So I ask myself, you know, how is Adam a type? How is he a figure or a form or a pattern of Christ? How is he like Christ? You know, I think we can understand how Adam might be a pattern of other human beings. You know, Adam sinned against God. So do we. So did we. We sin every day. But how can he be a pattern of Jesus Christ? How can sinful Adam, a mere man, represent or be similar to the sinless Son of God? Is that possible? Well, Paul says it is possible. And here's what I think he's thinking about. 
He's thinking both Adam and Christ were appointed by God to be representatives for other men. God appointed them to stand for others. In that way, Adam is a type of Christ. Both became heads of particular bodies of people. Each is the source of what could be called either the old humanity or the new humanity. The old humanity is the race as it stands apart from Jesus Christ, lost in its sin, headed for destruction. It's what we see today in the world around us. The new humanity is all redeemed people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. And dear ones, the entire human race is divided into these two humanities by virtue of their relationship to these two representatives. And finally, I think Paul is thinking both passed on to others the effects of their disobedience or obedience. Adam's disobedience led to death for the entire race. And Christ's obedience leads to life for those who believe in him. Now, I th Paul was thinking of all these similarities between Adam and Christ when he said that Adam was a type of Christ at the end of verse 14. And so he's ready to move on. But then he realizes, uh-oh, that's going to confuse people. And I've just told them how Adam was similar to Christ, but I've got to qualify that. Because that's not the whole story. I've got to show them some important ways in which Adam is not like Christ at all. And in which Christ is much, much greater than Adam. In fact, the differences are much greater than the similarities. So he stops. And in verses 15 and 17, our text for today... He explains some ways in which Christ is fundamentally different from Adam. He, I th he wants us to understand, deep in our souls, who we are in Christ. So he says, we are condemned in Adam, that's true. But the salvation that we have because of our union with Christ is far greater. It's far more glorious. I think he wants us to understand how amazing God's grace really is. Now, I want you to note that he's not saying here that what was lost in Adam was simply regained in Christ. He's not saying that. You see, as far as Paul is concerned, the story of redemption, the story of salvation, the story of God's grace is far better than that. What God has done in his covenant of grace is beyond all that we could ask or imagine. It so far outstrips what was lost in the covenant of works as it was broken in Adam that it will blow your mind just to think about it. And so he walks us through that argument here in three parts. Three great contrasts, which is what the title of the sermon is. And I'd like to look with you briefly this morning at each of these parts of his argument. Paul says in verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. I think the key contrast here is between the trespass of Adam and the free gift of God. Well, in what way is the gift of salvation in Christ not like the trespass of Adam? In what way is this gift much more? And I want to suggest that that the contrast is found in the word died in the first part of the verse. The sin of Adam brought death to all of us. And by contrast, the gift of God brought life to many. Now, I, I don't really want to do this, but I, I want to pause here for a minute. And I want to go on a little excursus because I, I don't want us to be misled or confused by Paul's use of the word many in this verse. You know, does Paul mean here that by Adam's sin, some people died, but not all people? Is that why he uses the word many here? Well, the short answer is no. You have to consider the whole section here. In verse 12, he's already said that through one man, sin entered into the world and death spread to all men. And later in verse 18, he reiterates that through Adam's sin, all men were condemned. All in verses 12 and 18, and many in verse 15 are parallel. See, Paul isn't thinking quantitatively here at all in verse 15. I think what he's doing is he's stressing instead the amazing multiplying effect of sin. Even though it was only one sin of Adam, the many were impacted. He's not saying here many but not all. He's not even thinking of numbers here. He's saying, isn't it amazing that one sin can wreck that kind of destruction on the whole race? In regards to the many to whom the gift of life abounded from Christ, Paul also means many, for surely many will be saved. We know all people will not be saved. The doctrine of universalism is an absolutely false biblical doctrine from the pit of hell. And even this passage shows that. Verse 17 lets us know that life, eternal life, the reign of life, comes only to those who receive God's abundance of grace and his free gift of righteousness. In other words, that free gift doesn't go to everybody. It goes only to those who receive him by faith alone, as he is offered in the gospel. Now, I pray that that doesn't confuse you. But you see, when you see the words all and many in this passage, you have to be careful and make sure you understand just how Paul is using them and not jump to wrong conclusions like universal salvation or that Adam's sin was imputed just to some, and not all. Well, let me go back. The contrast here in, in this verse is between death, which has come upon all of us because of Adam, and life, which has been given to every believer in Christ. Let's look at death. Death is natural in the sense that if we're left to our own devices, without any supernatural help, it just comes. It happens. 
You know, God told Adam and Eve, if they ate of the fruit of that one tree, they would die. They ate, and they died. It didn't require any special intervention of God to produce the effect. Sin always produces death, and it produces it equally for all people. Because Adam's sin, sin, death came in a natural and inevitable way upon the human race. Dear ones, even taxes are not as inescapable as immortality. You know, I've used, said this before, but Woody Allen once commented that he wasn't afraid of dying. He just didn't want to be there when it happened. <clears throat> well, he will be there when it happens, as it will inevitably happen to him and to all of us. We'll all be there. But, Paul says, that's a great word. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Over against the natural outworking of the sin of our first parents, resulting in the death of everybody, stands the supernatural working of our gracious God. You see, left to ourselves, our cause is hopeless. But God hasn't left us to ourselves. He has intervened to save us, apart from anything we could ever do. You know, Paul's going to write uh, about this later on in Romans 6. He says, for the wages of sin is death. You see, that's the natural part. This is something we earn. Death is the wage we naturally earn from Adam's imputed sin. But he goes on. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the supernatural part. You know, we're now out of the realm of wages. It's no longer a question of getting what's coming to us. Salvation is something that we can never earn or deserve. It's given to us as a free gift by God's marvelous, marvelous grace. See, that's how great God's salvation is. That's how great God's grace is. But Paul's not finished yet. Look at verse 16. Here he argues again. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The contrast here is between the one sin of Adam, which brought condemnation, and the many trespasses which Adam and all of us who followed him have committed, but which are atoned for by the blood of Christ. Let me put it this way. Let's, let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, that the one sin of Adam in eating of the forbidden tree turned out to be the only sin he ever committed. And that none of us who came after him in all of human history ever committed another sin in attitude, thought, word, or deed. No more sin except the first one of Adam. Now, I know that's impossible. But if that had been the case, it would still have been necessary for Jesus to die to save us. We have to remember, we are, we're condemned for Adam's sin. He was our federal head. He was our representative. We would still need a Savior to rescue us from that original sin and God's condemnation which came from it. And even if that had been the situation, 
and Jesus had come to save us from the effects of only that one sin, salvation would still have been glorious. And the angels would still rightly have used their time singing about Christ. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But you see, Paul says here that that's not the situation. Adam's one sin was not the only sin that Christ died for. Adam sinned many more times before he died at the age of 930 years. And his sins were followed by countless billions of sins, by billions of sinners, all of whom added their own arrogance, brutality, malice, and other vices to the, to the grim moral history of mankind. You know, if you go back in Romans to chapter 1, verses 29 through 32, Paul has already summarized for us the true essence of human history. He says that men were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? But that's the way it is. You know, I wonder how many times we have committed any of these and other sins. There are indeed many trespasses in the world. You know, I often use an illustration from uh, the evangelism program, uh, Evangelism Explosion. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you have gone through it. But the illustration goes like this. Let's suppose that a person was a good moral person and that he only sinned, let's say, let's just say three times a day in thought, word, or deed. He only fell short of God's perfect standard three times every 24 hours. Now, I think we could all agree that that would be a pretty good person, almost a walking angel. But if you sinned only three times a day, that would be over a thousand sins every year. And if he lived to be 70 years old, that would be 70,000 sins credited to his account. Now, if you were before a judge here on earth and he opened the books and he found 70,000 felonies on your record, He'd throw the book at you. He wouldn't only put you in jail, he would put you under the jail, and he would throw away the key. Dear ones, there are many trespasses in the world. And since Christ died for such a vast accumulation of sins, is it any wonder that Paul marvels in this verse how great God's grace really is in our salvation? You know, Paul says here that Adam with his one sin messed up big time. He got us into this mess. But he also says here, you know, that's true.
But think of the contrast. 150 generations of generational sin and corruption reversed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, dear ones, it's not just that Jesus Christ has put the lid back on Pandora's box. It is so much better than that. He has liquidated our debt. He's absorbed our penalty. He's acquitted us in court. And he's transformed our hearts by grace. He has put a stop to the incessant, seemingly immutable pattern of sin and judgment and condemnation. And Paul marvels here at this grace. He's surprised by it. And he says to us, do you want to find something to be surprised about? Don't be surprised about sin in a fallen world. There's nothing surprising about that. What's marvelous? What's great? What's surprising is the transforming grace of God. Well, thirdly, Paul goes on to argue in verse 17 that there's another great contrast between Adam and Christ. He says, if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I think the key to understanding this contrast is to emphasize the word abundance in the phrase abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And the thought that that those who have been abundantly blessed like this can, here and now, as well as then and there, reign in life in Christ. You see, Paul's third contrast here compares the reign of death through Adam's sin with the reign of life with those who trust in Christ. To put it as simply as I can, the work of Christ in dying for us hear this, doesn't merely restore us to the position in which Adam stood before the fall, but rather it carries us far, far beyond that. You see, when we believe in Christ, we don't simply recover from the fall of Adam. Instead, Paul says, we are made to, uh, we are made to reign through Jesus Christ. God's grace and salvation abounds. Not only are we forgiven, but over and above that, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. Now look at it this way. Adam, before he fell, was righteous. But it was his own righteousness as a created being. It was the righteousness of a man. Adam never had the righteousness of Christ upon him when he fell. What he lost was not the righteousness of Christ. He lost his own righteousness. But you and I are not given back a human righteousness. We are not clothed with the righteousness that Adam had before he fell. We're given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I do believe that Adam, after the fall, did receive the righteousness of Christ upon him. You remember uh, God had to uh, kill an animal and clothe them with skins. There was a blood sacrifice for Adam. And also, one other point, we are no longer on probation like Adam was. You see, Adam was made in God's image. He was innocent. 
He was without sin, but he was on probation. There was the possibility of his falling. And he fell. But you see, believers in Christ are not on probation. There's no possibility of our falling from grace. Sure, we sin, but never fall completely from God's grace. We will stand in that final day of divine judgment as we stand now. By God's grace, we are victorious because we don't attempt to stand in our own righteousness like Adam did. Instead, we stand before God's throne of grace, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, as Paul encourages us us later on in this chapter, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I close this morning by, I want to note again, God's wonderful, amazing grace. We see this manifested throughout this passage in Romans. The word itself is used three times in our text for today. Choose twice more in verses 20 and 21. I may be wrong, but it seems that the Christian church in our time doesn't think that God's grace is all that amazing. Grace is, I don't know, it's rather blasé today. It's almost expected by many Christians. It's our right, they say. God has to show grace. That's his job, after all. That seems to be the attitude of of many people today. Well, the Apostle Paul in this passage disabuses us of this sinful attitude. He doesn't want to be an ogre. He doesn't want to rain on our parade, but precisely in order that we might know the blessing of true grace. You know, he tells us here that God's grace abounds toward his people. It has no limit. It overflows. There's no way to measure it. It's utterly amazing, surprising, unexpected. It's greater than anything you've ever imagined. You think you have it all, Paul says, and then there's more, and then there's more. And on and on it goes to all eternity. And I must make this personal. Do you know this abounding grace? And if you do, are you rejoicing in it? Are you thrilled at the contemplation of God's grace? You know, I become more and more convinced every day that it's only when you and I and other Christians are rejoicing in this abundant grace as we ought to be that we will begin to attract the people who are outside the church. Dear ones, hear me this morning. There are lots of things about Christianity that will always be unattractive to the world. Holiness, discipleship, self-sacrifice, and more. But dear ones, grace is not one of them. Grace is attractive. Those who have received God's marvelous grace should be attractive too. Does your faith attract others around you? Do, Do you rejoice in God's grace? Do you feel compelled to share it with others? Do you really appreciate who you are in Christ? 
You know, in case you've forgotten, let me just refresh your memory of just who, by God's marvelous grace, you are in Christ. In Christ, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a child of God. You are part of the true vine. You are a channel of Christ's life. You are Christ's friend, chosen by Christ to bear his fruit, a slave of righteousness, a son and daughter of God, a joint heir with Christ, a temple of God. You are united to the Lord, a member of Christ's body, a new creation, a saint, a minister of reconciliation, God's workmanship, a fellow citizen with the rest of God's family, a son and daughter of light and not of darkness, a holy partaker of a heavenly calling, a partaker of Christ, God's living stone, being built up in Christ as a spiritual house, a member of the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, an alien and stranger to this world, and an enemy of the devil. This is who you are in Christ, and much more. See, this is who you are because of the abundance of God's grace which overflows to you. You're one of the king's kids. This is good news. This is worthy of rejoicing over. It's worth sharing with others. You know, I would pray this morning that all of us would be attractive and winsome Christians. We would always rejoice in God's amazing and abundant grace. That people would look at the grace reigning in our lives and say, if that's what Christianity is all about, then that's what I want. May the Lord bless you, beloved, and cause you to know all this in your own soul. For his dear son's sake. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, there is absolutely nothing like your grace. And forgive us for so often taking it for granted. We underestimate our sin. We overestimate what we deserve. We are so often arrogant before you. We stand before you in our own pride. We think that we can earn your love. And we forget the words of Isaiah, that you dwell in unapproachable light. You are high and lifted up. And yet at the same time, you dwell with those who are humble, those who are lowly in heart. Father, as we are humbled by your word this morning in this passage, so exalt yourself and bless those who humble themselves before you, trusting by faith in Jesus Christ and resting in his righteousness alone for salvation. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.